Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening, and as always, for your great feedback. Glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are on the cutting edge of our sector. And speaking of feedback, please go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. We really appreciate the encouragement. It helps get the word out to other potential listeners and certainly encourage you to tell us what you like from the episodes you've heard and what you'd like to hear more of as we plan for the future. I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Chris Putnam Walkerly, who brings 20 years of experience to our conversation through her work with many of the world's top funders and philanthropists. And you're not only going to get some great insight into the mindset of these donors, but also some of the challenges they face and how that impacts you as a nonprofit leader. Now, Chris has put much of her wisdom into a fantastic book called Delusional Altruism. And yes, you heard that right. The title should get your attention. And it gave us some great topics to discuss and really led to some takeaways that I think you'll appreciate. In addition to talking about what funders do to get in their own way, we talked about what nonprofit leaders do that slows them down and makes them less effective. And perhaps more importantly, we talked about ways you can do things differently so that you aren't inhibited by these challenges. So don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 81, and you can find it on the podcast and the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources mentioned, as well as more information on Chris, her book, and the great work she's doing through Putnam Consulting Group. While you're on the website, make sure you connect with us. Make sure you're on our email list so you can get our free weekly resources And let us know if we can help your nonprofit with its strategy, fundraising, or board engagement, or perhaps you on your professional journey through coaching, training, or our mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Putnam Walkerly. Chris, thank you for joining me on the path. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation uh, to, to kind of pick your brain about your experience and the insights you have gotten, particularly on the funder and donor mindset. You've got a fantastic book called Delusional Altruism that I know we'll talk about and understanding this mindset of the donor, the funder. But I guess more importantly for our listeners, Chris, we'll talk about what nonprofit leaders need to learn from this yes. and learn from your, your experience, your research and everything else. So before we get into that, tell us a little bit about how did you get into the philanthropic work you do now? Well, it's interesting. I always sort of envisioned myself working in the nonprofit sector. And after college, I went and moved from Indiana, where I was going to school, to San Francisco. And I went to work for an organization, a nonprofit organization, trying to support human rights in Central America. And, um, you know, so we were doing a lot of political organizing, grassroots organizing, organizing, you know, demonstrations and whatnot. And uh, interestingly, you know, this was back in the, I'm dating myself, but the early (laughs) 1990s. And, um, you know, the biggest technology of the day was the fax machine. Uh, That was the brand spanking new technology. And, um, and I'm sharing the story to kind of 
share with you kind of my segue into, into philanthropy, if you will. Sure. But, sure. Um, you know, we used fax machines and faxing back then the way people use social media today, which, you know, is to get the word out quickly and really mobilize people. So we would send fax alerts uh, when um, we wanted to get people to call their congressperson to vote, you know, for a certain bill or whatnot. But we, you know, we made very little money as a nonprofit. In fact, everyone in the entire organization made $12,500 a year. Wow. <laughs> I know. Um, and, uh, and somehow we survived. But we didn't believe that we could afford to buy our own fax machine because we felt all the money we raised needed to go to help the people we were trying to help in Central America. Right. So instead, we borrowed the fax machine of an organization 10 blocks away. So every day or a couple of times a week, we'd walk about you know, a half hour to borrow someone else's fax machine, send our faxes and walk back. That's about an hour, a mile round trip. So fast forward and two years later, I was in El Salvador uh, uh, on a delegation meeting with some of the people we were supporting. And we walk into the office of this human rights organization. And what is the first thing that I see? A ginormous fax machine, <laughs> right? This thing was like, you know, standing on the floor. It could copy, collate, you know, fax, staple, you know, it practically was making- State of the art, right? State of the art, right? And so I was, you know, stunned. And I asked the executive director, you know, how could you possibly afford a fax machine when you're relying on international donations, you know, that we're bringing? And he looked at me like I was insane. And he said, well, of course, we need a fax machine. We need to send faxes every day. <laughs> Why wouldn't we? Exactly. Exactly. And it was my first um, real experience with what I now call, you know, delusional altruism, which was, you know, we thought we were being altruistic, but really we were just delusional and thinking about how much more money we could have raised had we, you know, spent an hour a day calling donors as opposed to an hour a day walking to send a fax. And so um, anyway, that was, you know, really my first understanding of the nonprofit sector and both the value that it provides and really making a difference and changing people's lives. And also, you know, the delusion that it creates and how yes, yes. You know, many nonprofit leaders with the best of intentions and funders, you know, get in their own way. Um, and from there, I decided to get a master's in social work and thought that I was going to be um, running a nonprofit social service agency upon graduation, but took some classes in evaluation and became very intrigued by you know, the ability to assess impact and evaluate progress and understand what's working and not working in order to have a greater impact. And then I went to work at Stanford University and I was an evaluator of youth and gang violence prevention programs all over California. And that was funded by a foundation, the California Wellness Foundation. It was their first big initiative. They were a new funder. And uh, they were, unlike many funders, having a 10-year funding horizon. So they were actually thinking about how do we invest you know, tens of millions Long of dollars term. over 10 years, which yeah. was, you know, kind of still is unheard of. <laughs> and, um, and it was really interesting because I realized you know, as a funder, you know, any, any funder has money, kind of that's what you have, right? And, um, but that isn't going to solve problems. What solves problems is really is thinking about what is the problem and who are the right people? You know, can we bring in the right experts and best practices and models 
and approaches and what does the research say and what do communities tell us. So you can really create, you know, the right intervention, the right strategy and approach to then, you know, make a difference and create change. And in that case, it was really shifting people's thinking about youth violence from, you know, an incarceration solution to a prevention solution. And uh, it helped me realize that, you know, the impact that a funder can have. And so from there, I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. Oh, yeah. And then I began my consulting career after that. So it's been 20 years that I've been advising and consulting to grant makers. That's fantastic. And as our listeners will see in the show notes, your experience is uh, both deep and broad. And I love, however, as a fellow member of the fax machine generation, (laughs) um, I've got kids that will have no idea what I'm talking about or you and I are talking about, but it's such a good illustration of as your book title implies, delusional altruism. And in fact, I, I guess I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question on that. It, is that, I, I'm guessing this book has been in your head for a while and what ultimately, I guess, propelled it to uh, to actually take it to publication? Yeah, it has been in my head for a while because it really draws upon my experience advising funders for the past 20 years and recognizing that the mistakes that they're making Uh, And, you know, really delusional altruism is about, you know, not that funders are crazy, but that they're really getting in their own way and they're preventing themselves from having the impact that they want to be having. And they often don't realize it, but they're usually doing it with the best of intentions, you know, being altruistic and thinking they're doing the right thing, but getting in their way. And so I'd say, you know, actually three things propelled me to write it. Um, One was uh, a question that I often ask my clients, which is, if you could only accomplish one thing in the next year, but it was gonna be your legacy with your organization or your foundation, what would it be? You could only accomplish one thing in the next year, but it would be your legacy, what would Interesting. it be? Interesting. It's a great question because it, yeah. you know, we all have lots of things we're trying to do, but what's that one thing that you know really would be the lasting legacy? And I asked myself that, and immediately this book popped into my head. And I thought, you know, if I only did one more thing in this field and contributed one more thing to philanthropy, it would be this book because it would be, it would last, you know, beyond me and could help a lot of funders. And, um, but the second thing is I, um, I, I, I talked to and met a lot of other consultants who had written books. I'm, I'm part of a, you know, global philanthropic, or excuse me, global consultant community of you know, consultants working in all kinds of industries and we learn from each other. And uh, I you know, met a lot of people who had written a lot of books and I didn't realize that I could write a book. And so simply just talking to them about their experience and how they did it and what they did and what they would do differently was quite helpful. And then you know, I took my own advice and got help. <laughs> so Good, I, yeah. I, I hired somebody to help me put my book proposal together. And I even hired, once I got the contract with Wiley to write the book, I hired a writing coach to help me. Um, I, you know, I'm a good writer. I like writing, but I, I knew I needed to breathe different life into this book and I knew I needed some help to do that. So um, those are the three things that I did that really helped me. That's fantastic. And of course, reinforces a theme of this podcast, which is professional development, coaching, et cetera. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. uh, you literally illustrate that kind of mantra in your writing. And, and of course, you brought a message that I think both funders and nonprofit leaders need to hear 
Um, before I get into those, some of those specifics, let me ask you this, because I've asked all of my guests in this strange kind of virtual environment we're in, have you found any particular ways to, to help yourself stay organized or perhaps in observing other leaders you interact with? What seems to help people be more productive these days? Yeah, a couple things. One is, you can't see it since we're just on audio, but the backdrop behind me in my office uh, is a very attractive, you know, professional looking backdrop. It's simply a, you know, a bookcase with some books. Of course, my <laughs> right. book is like <laughs> prominently well featured, yeah, right. uh, you know, with some awards and, you know, decorative things and whatnot. There's a chair, there's a table. Um, but that's very intentional. And so I, you know, I'm lucky to have a, an office in my home. I've been working from home for 20 years. And I actually, during the pandemic, like week one, I created what I've been meaning to do for a long time, which is a separate space in my office that was always video ready. Because previously, you know, I would think I'd have a meeting and then suddenly, you know, we've all done this like two minutes before the meeting, you realize it's a Zoom video meeting and you think, oh my God, you know, like I look awful. And my office is a disaster. So I would rapidly like grab everything off of like anything behind me. And I would just like toss it on the floor. Right. Exactly. Make myself look presentable and my office look presentable. Consequently, you know, everything was disorganized. Right. Because then my piles were now jumbled. And so it caused a lot of really like a stress. And it took a lot of time to kind of keep reorganizing. So I just put in a different table, a desk, and just created this backdrop that never changes. Like I don't touch it. And so whenever I have a video call or which is, you know, I've had probably 50 call, not just calls, but like webinars that I've been giving and uh, video interviews and whatnot uh, in the past nine months, I just simply lift my laptop from my regular desk to my, you know, pretty desk (laughs) and and off I go. So it's really helpful and it costs nothing. I just had to make some rearrangements and, you know, make organize my books and whatnot. Um, and so that I highly recommend. And a second thing is, um, and I write about this in my book, I actually have a whole chapter on ways to increase speed in our work. And I start with, you know, for us people, people personally, like how to get more time back in your day as a person. And one of the pieces of advice I give is to, um, basically not look at your phone the very first thing you do in the morning. Right. And, you know, how many of us wake up, like turn over, grab our phone and start scrolling either the news or your email or WhatsApp or whatever it is. And, you know, what you're doing is basically giving away your priorities to somebody else, right? You're, you're handing over your agenda for the day to whoever happened to email you over, overnight or to whatever, you know, CNN or, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal, whatever news app you read, you know, happen to place as the headline. And off you go, you know, suddenly you're distracted, you feel guilty, you're stressed about the world, you are stressed that you had forgotten to do something that someone's emailing you about, and like your whole day gets side, you know, goes sideways. And we do it, I mean, data should indicate, I forget what the statistic is, it's in the book, but it's something like, 50% of all Americans like look at their phone within the first five minutes of waking up. I'm morning. not surprised. Yeah. Not and, surprised. Uh, and so I try to literally force myself to not do that. And what I try to do instead is spend the first hour 
doing something that's for me. I mean, it could be for work, you know, like the first hour of my working day. I mean, it could be, but it's something creative. Like maybe I'll, you know, write an article or I'll just brainstorm something or I'll um, even, you know, it could just be organizing my office or like something that isn't. Um, it's kind of not as do. digital, isn't right? Like, or it's not relying on the yeah, electronic yeah. medium. So yeah. So that the first, so I have actually accomplished something within the first hour and it really, allows me to, you know, focus on what's important to me and my business and not what's important to whoever happened to email me. Great advice. Uh, I've tried to employ a similar tactic, journaling, sometimes mm. writing others, but you're right. It seems to me if, if we if we allow us, ourselves to go down the slippery slope of any of our devices, uh, you're right. We can lose literally and mentally, we lose a great portion of our day. So absolutely. Great advice on both counts, Chris. Thank you for that. And uh, but now delighted to dive into delusional altruism, and and you're it's a great read. Let me first start with that. I've enjoyed it myself. And you're quick to point out that these funders, these philanthropists, are are very well intentioned, but they do in fact get in their own way. So maybe start with that. Why are they getting in their own way? Oh, yeah. Well, so in the book, I outline seven different ways that delusional altruism manifests itself. Uh, but I'll just share three of them with you here in the interest of time. And the first is um, they have a, what I call a scarcity mindset. And so by this, I mean, uh, they believe that, um, you know, maintaining a Spartan operation somehow equates to, the, to delivering more value for their community. And people are also often surprised by this because we equate, you know, philanthropy with wealth and wealth with abundance, not scarcity. But too often funders, you know, refuse to really invest in what's necessary in order to achieve what they want to achieve. And so, you know, your nonprofit listeners uh, experience this because uh, funders will often, you know, support funding for programs but not for overhead, right? Yeah, exactly. Not for infrastructure, right? And that's um, such a frustration for many nonprofits. Uh, but funders also do this to themselves. And so, you know, it's a refusal to invest in their own infrastructure, technology, strategy, uh, evaluation, communications, um, you know, relationship building, you name it. And sometimes this is out of guilt, you know, feeling like, oh, we are so wealthy, you know, we have resources, so we, this is bad if we invest in ourselves. Right. But I'm not talking about, you know, taking your board on a a cruise, you know, exotic for vacation, right. exotic vacation for your board retreat, right? I'm talking about investing in the ability to make online grant payments, you know. Uh, so I joke, but it's really true. At the beginning of this pandemic, all funders in the globe, the whole world, can be divided into two categories. Those that had invested in the ability to make online grant payments, you know, electronically, and those who hadn't. Uh, and so those who had, as everyone, you know, fled home, you know, grabbed their belongings, <laughs> like dashed out the door, uh, they were able to make grants to nonprofits, you know, in that remote environment from home quickly and easily because they had invested in, you know, not much time and really not much money to be able to do that. There are a lot of funders that still 
have no ability to do that. They only could write, make grant payments via a check that was a paper check that multiple people had to sign physically that was locked in their office. Good grief. Yeah. That they could not access. I mean, a lot of you know, organizations, when they went into lockdown, like that was it. You were not allowed to leave, the, you know, be walking around the streets, much less get into your building. Right. I mean, I have a client that's still to, to this day can't get into her office, can't get into her office for any reason whatsoever. And, and thus would be so, limited by a process like that, right? That is just absolutely. <laughs> right. And so if you're if you're in the business of giving money away and you can't give the money away, uh, you know, it makes it really not it's stressful. I mean, I have clients that were tremendously already, of course, we're all stressed out with the pandemic, but then they really wanted to help, right? Again, they're genuinely wanting to make a difference, get the money out the door quickly, reduce, you know, requirements, um, you know, give extra funding make unrestricted grants and literally couldn't. So all that to say is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, funders don't recognize the importance of it really investing in infrastructure and building your capacity as a funder so that you are more aware of community needs. You have relationships with community members that you can talk to to understand what's happening, what's changing in your community and how to respond. Uh, that certainly that you are investing in your nonprofit partners because, you know, uh, as you all know, um, you know, in order, if you really care as a funder, if you care about a cause uh, or want to solve a problem and there's a nonprofit you want to support, you know, don't you want to support the nonprofit that has, you know, top talent, a great board, uh, you know, a well-oiled fundraising machine, great financial management, evaluates its effectiveness, like, of course you do, right? But all that costs money uh, and you need to invest in that as a funder and, and too few funders do. So that's one, it's the that's scarcity right. mindset. Well, can I ask you a question, Chris, about that? And mm-hmm. and because I and, and forgive me, you may touch on it as well. I know you did. And I, I think it was that you have too many steps chapter, which I, <laughs> I thought was so spot on. But it, it, so I'm a funder. I, is it because I want to make my my foundation legitimate. I create too much administration, but am I because of perhaps concerns of watchdog, you know, agencies that look at my foundation and, and they think if it's too simplified, then something must be not kosher. I think it's that. I think it's you know. I mean, as a funder, you you have re- either it's your own money. It's like your family, uh, or you, you sold your company. You have a foundation, or or you're the professional staff stewarding somebody else's money. But nonetheless, you know, you want to make good choices with these resources and that's fair and important. But yes, you're right. I think it's either um, lack of knowledge. I mean, really a, a private foundation is actually very few, very few requirements of what you need to do. And the rest of it, funders make up. <laughs> they, they create their own complexity then, don't they? They create their own complexity. And, yeah, no, yeah. and again, and often with the best of intentions. So having, you know, a process is important. So everyone knows the steps and what to follow. But what often happens is two things. One is that, you know, you're starting out, you don't quite know what you're doing. So you look around you at what your peers are doing and you just replicate that. Well, they just made that up too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And let me give you an example of that. So one of uh, a woman that I know, she, um, she was the second in command of a foundation. She was like the vice president of, a, of one foundation. It was her first only foundation she had worked at. 
And that foundation um, had a practice where they conducted site visits with applicants. They, you know, had a quarterly application process and every quarter, you know, nonprofits applied for funding. And if they met the basic criteria, all of them, like 30 of them got site visits Wow! every quarter. It was a big production, but it, but it made sense for that foundation because it was part of their values. You know, they really wanted to build relationships with the nonprofits and really understand them and be a partner. And they, you know, they involved their board, like board members were expected to attend some, all staff, even like the receptionist was expected to attend at least some to really learn about the nonprofits and build relationships. So it it made sense and it's still a lot of work, but it, it, it fit with their values and their strategy. So then this woman went to, she accepted a new position. She became the CEO of an entirely different foundation. And, uh, but it was a brand new foundation. And she thought uh, that she had to conduct site visits. Like she didn't know anything else. She thought it was part of the rules, literally. Right. And so it was a brand new foundation. It was like her and like a part-time bookkeeper and like a part-time CFO. Like that was the staff. My goodness. And then a brand new board who was learning what it meant to be a foundation board. And she said, what do I do? Like, how do I organize all these site visits? And I said, well, you know, you don't actually have to. <laughs> it's not required. And she said it isn't. And so, and, and this is a woman who is exceptionally smart, like really involved nationally in philanthropy, but it was just, you know, that was her experience. And so uh, just to say that, you know, often we kind of come up with these practices and policies because we think that's what we're supposed to do or that's what other people seem to do without really thinking through, well, what is our strategy and what's the best way to accomplish it? Um, that's so true. Yeah. Chris, I could imagine, did some board members say, well, you need to do due diligence, you know, or they threw out some phrase like that, that convinced a foundation leader that I, well, I guess I got to do site visits for everybody when in fact, that's just horribly exactly. inefficient, isn't it? To the ultimate goal. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, you know, similarly, the sort of myth of, you know, overhead being bad, I think is another problem. And, you know, you often hear from board members will say, I think foundation board members will say, well, you know, we should only fund organizations that have low overhead. And, you know, this organization only spends 2% of its budget on overhead. So that should be our metric, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's not based in fact, you know, like that's just their belief because, you know, there's been this myth promoted of like, you know, 99 cents of every dollar should go to help, you know, feed the hungry children and only one cent should be for, you know, running the organization. Well, you know, how is the organization supposed to pay its staff, keep the lights on, pay rent? And- Won't feed the children if you go out of business, will you? Exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, these things just get tossed around and, and they become, belief systems. The other thing is that, you know, just, you know, it sort of starts small and almost innocent. And then it just sort of grows like black mold across organizations where processes just get added to and added to, you know, there's another um, foundation, uh, again, well-known, well-respected foundation, great staff. And they have had a new CEO come on board and she was really stunned to learn that it took an average of nine months to make a grant Wow! that organization. And she, you know, she was sort of horrified and she had them do kind of an audit of their grant making processes. And again, 
nothing malicious, you know, no funder wakes up and says, let me make this all harder for myself, my team and my grantees, right? But it was just that, you know, questions got added to applications and steps got added over time and, you know, processes got added and extra signatures and blah, blah, blah. And no one was really paying attention. And uh, that's kind of how these things happen. And there can be way too many steps in the grant making process and it slows things down. And again, it's delusional altruism. You, you're trying to help nonprofits respond, but they're stuck waiting for their funding and they can't act. They can't hire, you know, they can't do the work they're doing if they don't have confidence that they have funding to support them. Yeah, the complexity of your process does not win you any extra mission points, does it? <laughs> and but it, it it seems like you're right. Whether it's just kind of an add-on over years and lack of uh, paying enough attention, I like that you point out that maybe an audit for many of these funders might reveal things that were right in front of them. And I wonder is that sometimes the advice you give when a foundation, in your estimation, is just kind of bloated or has created a bureaucracy that's unwieldy? Oh, yes. It's one of the ways that I help my clients is to help them, you know, figure out how to increase their speed, really. And so right. part of that is doing uh, an audit of their grant making process and really thinking about, you know, in the book I write about, you know, looking under your hood, but really thinking about if you lifted this up, what's actually necessary and what's not necessary. And how right. do you, again, but it, to me, it all comes back to having clarity on your strategy. You know, what are you trying to accomplish? And then what, what are the actual steps you need to accomplish it? And everything else really is extraneous, is waste. And so right. what can you eliminate? And it's easier to do than you think, because, you know, if, if you're a, an individual or a couple, you know, philanthropist, or you have a large team, you know, most of the stuff is the things that your team are like rolling their eyes at or beating their head against <laughs> they the wall. They don't want to do it anyway. <laughs> right? If you just ask them, if we could eliminate three things, what would it be? Chances are they'll come up with some. And if you just start with, you know, you don't have to like do a massive overhaul. You can start with, you know, eliminating some steps or making some changes and seeing what happens and seeing how much faster, uh, you know, you can get things done. I mean, you know, during this pandemic, my gosh, Funders have done amazingly well in changing longstanding practices. Yeah. There's a lot of funders. Silver lining there, isn't there? Yeah. And, you know, these tightly held beliefs and practices of, you know, we only, we have to conduct three months of due diligence and we must do site visits and the money can only go for this, but not that. Um, you have to fill out this complex application form. All of that got dropped like, you know, hot potatoes within a week. Uh, for many, many funders. And, you know, the, you know, thank God. And yeah, nonprofits, maybe some lessons you know, learned. Right. right. And so I, I'm actually working on an article right now about how to, you know, how do funders maintain a lot of those good practices um, going forward? Because if, if you could pull that off during the greatest crisis in a century, like chances are you can pull it off next year too. That's such a good point. And well, this is such a helpful uh for a nonprofit leader to understand the mindset of some of the funders that we're interacting with. And, and while we may not be able to change them, hopefully these funders are going to read your book and understand how to stop getting in their own way. But uh, Chris, you make a good point that sometimes we as nonprofit leaders get in our own way as well. 
So maybe you could talk about that. What are some of the ways nonprofit leaders, which by the way, this is fixable if I'm a leader, um, if I can't change my funder, maybe I can at least untangle myself. Exactly. Well, I think that scarcity mindset applies to nonprofit leaders as well. Good point. Because, you know, too many nonprofits uh, don't invest in themselves either. Uh, again, it's that belief, like we did with our fax machine, that, you know, all the resources we that come into us must go out, you know, into the community right. to right. help our clients, which, you know, of course, is the mission of your organization. Um, but you can't, you just can't give it all away, right? It's like you have to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help others. And, you know, I think it's really important to, for nonprofits to invest in themselves. Uh, you know, and again, this does not need to be expensive, but, you know, having, um, you know, a clear strategy, having some kind of fund development infrastructure, you know, I mean, thinking about this, let's just look at the PPP loans. Um, right. You know, that was overwhelming and scary and confusing for many nonprofits and businesses, you know, by the way. And, but it's the nonprofits that had good financial management systems that had access to all of their financial statements that had been, you know, doing their taxes well, who had a good bookkeeper or an accountant they had a good relationship with and had a relationship with a banker, you know, as opposed to just, you know, using the ATM uh, and whatnot. So, you know, if you had, so going into a crisis, that particular crisis, if you had all those things in place, if you had good financial management, knew your numbers, knew how much cash you had on hand, um, you know, maybe had somebody on your board that was capable and already helping you with this, knew someone at the bank you could talk to, that all went so much more smoothly for those nonprofits because they could act quickly. They knew what they were up against. They knew what they had to do. They could make quick decisions about what should we apply for this or not? What does it mean? And how do we do it? And the nonprofits that hadn't taken that time or made that investment in themselves to have all of that in place were the ones that were, you know, floundering, struggling, yep. struggling and didn't know where to turn. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to make smart decisions in a crisis unless you have that, you already have that capacity uh, and, you know, people to turn to. Um, great takeaway. Yeah. Great takeaway, Chris. And hopefully the, you know, the shock of the last year maybe will force some infrastructure improvements and and I wonder sometimes, Chris, if if board members contribute, uh, maybe as in the funder category, but with nonprofits, the the board members are driving this kind of low overhead myth, and maybe now board members will be more supportive of you know the executive directors and doing things like you're suggesting. Yeah, I, board members really hold a lot of power, and they're hard to reach. I mean, it's a hard group to right. educate, really. And I agree. And I think, you know, one exercise I'm, a, I'm helping a lot of my clients go through that anyone could do is really think about, reflect on last year and ask yourself as a group, you know, with your board, some questions like, what did we try differently that worked really well? Uh, and what did we try that didn't work so well? Um, what things had we put in place prior to the pandemic that thank God we did because it really helped us? So then we can see the value of some of that, you know, if right. it was technology, if it was uh, online, you know, payments, whatever it was. Uh, what, what did we wish we had in place uh, that we didn't <laughs> that hurt us? 
Um, and then, you know, did any of the things that we've done differently, like what should we maintain going forward and what also could be expanded? So let's say, you know, from a funder's perspective, if, you know, re reducing application criteria, not criteria, but like, um, you know, questions and hoops and hurdles, if that helped us get the money out the door, if, you know, efforts to increase our speed and reduce- Streamline it, right? Yeah. yeah then, then what else can we streamline across Love our that. organization? What else can we speed up? Um, so I think those questions are really helpful to, to look, because we've all learned so much from the past year and, you know, don't let all that learning go to waste. We can really harness it to our advantage and make ourselves much stronger. No, uh, uh, such a good point, Chris. Uh, I heard a nonprofit executive director I was speaking with said, yeah, she had outlawed the phrase when, when things get back to the way they were, because of course they're not, you know, even hopefully with the vaccine and other advances in our health. Um, I love the fact that you're saying, yeah, let's, let's not let this crisis go to waste, right? And have, I guess, focused exercise on uh, discussions around what worked, what didn't work, and how can we maybe continue to streamline. Absolutely. And engage your board in that conversation because it'll really help them recognize, you know, what happened, how people responded and what's needed to, to effectively run your nonprofit. Yeah, well put, Chris. Is anything else you've seen in your observations or thinking about how nonprofit leaders can, you know, get out of their own way, so to speak? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the manifestations of delusional altruism that affects funders and nonprofits is fear. And I think fear is the biggest cause of the scarcity mindset, so much so that I wrote a whole chapter about it. And, you know, I wrote the chapter lap in 20, the whole book in 2019. So this was before the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but, you know, I think uh, nonprofits experience a lot of fear in, you know, simply talking to funders. You know, a lot of nonprofits at the beginning of the lockdown and pandemic were worried, like, should we talk to our donors or not? Should we reach out for funding or not? Right. You know, maybe we're, we're not worthy enough. Maybe we aren't quite as uh, critical right now in this pandemic. Are we going to be bothering the funder? Um, and so there was a lot of worry and anxiety and fear related to having those conversations. There's a lot of fear about, you know, losing funding. Right. Um, a lot of fear, you know, a lot of, but, but related to like, um, well, maybe we should take this grant, even though it sort of takes us off mission, because if we don't take that grant, maybe we'll have no other funding. So off you go doing something that's off mission uh, because of this fear of losing money. And also, you know, fear of investing in yourself, kind of, again, this feeling of guilt, like I don't deserve to uh, have professional development or take vacation or get a decent wage because, you know, people in our community are living in poverty. Right. Again. Um, and so that fear, I think, really holds funders back. And I think also, you know, we have to recognize that you you have so much to to offer as a as a nonprofit. I mean, the antidote to a scarcity mindset is an abundance mindset. And I think it's really important for nonprofits to recognize that, you know, your funder is not the one that's building low-income housing. They're not the ones providing shelter for people who are experiencing domestic violence. They're not the ones who are, you know, providing arts education in the community. They're funding you to do that. That might be their mission, 
but you, the nonprofit leader, are the ones helping the funders to achieve their mission. So you provide, you know, you're a peer, you're equal, you provide tremendous value. Uh, without you, the funder would have nothing to do. Like they yes. couldn't be able to yes. achieve their mission. And you really have to have that mindset, I think, of a peer-to-peer conversation. And here's the value that we're providing you. And quite frankly, I mean, you wouldn't say this directly, but like, aren't you lucky to have us? You know, aren't you lucky that here we are to solve the problem that you care about? And we're doing a great job. And, you know, basically in exchange for this amazing work, like we just need funding to do it. And that's, you know, funder where you can help us. Um, And also to recognize that, you know, funders provide more than money. And so again, if you establish that, if you see yourself as a peer, then you can recognize that you can have a conversation with a funder that says, hey, you know, yes, of course, we always need money, but we also need introductions to people. You know, if you bank at this bank, we don't have a banker, we don't have a relationship with anybody there. Can you introduce us to your bankers so we can have a conversation about PPP? Or we need this kind of help. Do you know anyone that can help us with that? Or, you know, you've scaled your business. How do we scale our nonprofit? You know, whatever it might be, you know, recognizing that funders bring a lot more than financial resources um, and to have those conversations with them, I think is really effective. I could not agree more. And you, you of course, reference, I think appropriately, the fear factor and the power dynamic maybe between a funder and me as a nonprofit leader. But you're right. Maybe there is another silver lining element to the current circumstances that we can create conversations, right? Mm-hmm. That between our organization and our funders as peers, and in fact, find ways that will streamline both sides instead of this kind of intimidated maybe perspective that nonprofit leaders sometimes have, because uh, maybe your funder <laughs> would be open to streamlining their process if they understood better how it affected you. Absolutely. A- absolutely. And I think, you know, now, you know, here we are in the beginning of 2021 and, you know, as a nonprofit, I mean, nonprofits have responded in all different kinds of ways, but wherever you're at, you know, a conversation with your funders, I think is really important to say, hey, this is how we were impacted. This is how we responded. Um, these are the things that worked. You know, this is where we need help, um, you know, and just being very clear, like these are the ways that you could help us. Can we have a conversation? And, you know, quite frankly, even if they can't help you, they probably know somebody who can. So it's still worth having that conversation with them now um, and letting them know the ways that they can get involved in, you know, the impact that you're having in the in your community or in the world. Yeah, there are strategic partnerships or resources that could indeed be available beyond the funding if we, you know, open up that dialogue and uh, mm-hmm. glad you left it up. I, I want to ask you too, one other area you have uh, written about in your book and in other articles about board members, foundation board members, but I think some of the principles you talk about, Chris, could apply to board members in general. And I wonder, you know, we've talked about funders, we've talked about nonprofit leaders. Is there any particular advice you'd offer to board members who are either doing good things or maybe could do some things better? Yeah, I think a couple things. One is, um, you know, one is to be recognized the power dynamic of, you know, funder versus nonprofit. And, you know, it's very easy to serve on a nonprofit board if it's your family or a company board or just a private foundation. Uh, and, you know, you're in the, in the business of giving the money away. And, you know, just to recognize that there's always, 
we can try to mitigate against it, but there's always this power dynamic. You know, one person's giving the money, one person's asking for the money. Guess who holds the power? And yeah, exactly. so just think about <laughs> and think about, you know, how can you um, mitigate against that by a lot of different ways. One is, you know, certainly by, you know, educating yourself about community needs. If you have opportunities to go on site visits, um, and you know, this quite frankly is good advice for a nonprofit board member as well. Uh, really understand what's happening in the community and how hard the work is and how long things take. You know, it takes a long time to help people, you know, stop being addicted to drugs or to deal with mental health issues or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, recognize the reality of what the community needs are as well as the nonprofit needs are. Um, and, you know, recognize that a nonprofit is really no different than a business in the sense of like, if you're a business owner as a board member, chances are you invested in, in your own talent in staff retention in um, good HR systems and financial management systems and research and development and, you know, board retreats, all these things, right? Well, why wouldn't a nonprofit need to do that yes. as well? <laughs> Amen to that. And I know you and I both are, are, of course, advocates for professional development in all these settings, but I think in particular, the nonprofit sector starves itself sometimes of those types of uh, mm -hmm. support systems. And so I'd I'm looking, Chris, at a wonderful checklist, literally, of takeaways from your advice, your book, your conversations. I, I wonder, is there anything else you would add maybe to a nonprofit leader gearing up for 2021, hoping for, you know, an optimistic future here? But any other words of wisdom you might add? Yeah, I would say, you know, any organization, philanthropic, nonprofit, for-profit, you know, really needs a clear strategy at all times to guide its work. And, you know, whatever strategic plan we might have had in 2020, you know, especially at before the February of 2020, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. is can no longer possibly remain intact, right? And even, you know, quite frankly, the strategy might have developed last summer uh, might not remain intact because, you know, conditions keep changing. But what I mean by that is not spending a year, you know, to create a five-year strategic plan, because if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's the futility of, you know, quite frankly, taking that much time and planning that far ahead, because, you know, conditions are always Things changing. Change. Yep. And it can feel overwhelming because, you know, it's constant change that we're in right now. But, uh, and so you can kind of feel like, well, what's the point? You know, everything's going to change. Let's just kind of wake up in the morning and get stuff done, right? But I think what you need to do is really kind of, again, shift your mindset. And instead of thinking, letting this idea of the future being unknown to kind of paralyze us, we need to let it free us and recognize that, you know, um, the future is no more unknown today than it was two years ago or last decade or last century, right? And there is no new normal coming around the corner because right. there never really was a normal. Um, you know, things are always changing and disruption really is the status quo. And to instead of like freaking out about that, to actually let that be a, a freeing experience. And instead, you know, think about, you know, what do we want to accomplish, let's say, in the next 12 months? Because I think that's about as far as you can plan out at this point. Uh, time horizon, right. You know, who do we want to be a year from now? What kind of impact do we want to be having in a year? And, you know, 
for some nonprofits, it could be as simple as that, as we want to still be in existence a year from now, like that's legitimate. Or, you know, we want to have, you know, um, you know, improved uh, outcomes for, you know, arts education or domestic violence or whatever it is. Um, what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish within a year? And then look at where are you today? You know, literally, like, where are we uh, in that right now? And how do we get from where we are today to where we want to be in 12 months? I mean, it really is that simple. What are the top three or four most important things that we need to focus on? You know, what's that 80% of effort or 20% of effort that's going to drive that 80% of results? Right. That's going to get us from where we want to be to where we want to go. And recognize that and, you know, and work on that. So then like assign people to be accountable to each of those things. Um, but recognize that things are going to change. Like, that's great. Like now we have our plan and something's going to get messed up. You know, something's going to change. There's going to be an opportunity or whatever. So you need to build in time. Like you need to build in agility opportunities. And by that, I mean, literally like check in on your plan every month whatever makes sense, quarterly, so that you can sit down with your team and say, great, it's like, what progress have we made? What's not working? What did, what should we add? What should we abandon? And you tweak it and then you keep going so that you always have a sentient, living, breathing strategy that's guiding your, where you're headed, but that's based in reality of what's actually going on in the community so that you can respond to opportunities as they arise and that your team can be aligned to focus on what's most important. And uh, for your listeners, you know, I actually wrote and just published a a new guide that kind of outlines all these different steps. Um, And if you wanna download it, it's a free download and it's an easy read. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. (laughs) Right. And it's, but it's applicable really to a nonprofit leader or a, you know, for-profit leader. Um, and you can just go to the website, eightthings.org and download it for free. And I think you'll find it really helpful, um, again, to quickly, you know, I advise, you know, nonprofits and foundations. I do a lot of strategic planning. And I, when I say quickly, I mean like in a week or in a couple of weeks, you know, not don't stretch let's it out forever and do a bunch yeah. of research. And, you know, I'm talking about let's get moving on what's most important and, you know, use it to guide you along the way with the confidence that you can change it as you need to. Chris, great advice. Thank you for the pep talk that is inherent in your advice as well that nonprofit leaders need. And for the gift of your free article, we will absolutely uh, link that in our show notes. In fact, if I could ask you for one more parting gift, we'll lift up your great book itself, Chris. But I wonder, have you been affected by a book along your professional journey that you might also recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I'll I'll suggest two, actually. One is um, Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. Oh, yeah. And so if any of your listeners are interested in consulting, exploring consulting, it's a fabulous book. Alan has been a mentor and coach of mine for many years. And He's really, he's probably written, I don't know, 50 books on consulting, <laughs> right, right. but that's really the main one. And there's a new edition that came out recently. And the second is, um, I believe it's called Building a Story Brand Donald by Miller. Donald Miller. Yeah. And it's really a, a book about marketing and communications using story. 
but in a very practical way. And so I, I found that very helpful for my own marketing and communications. Great suggestions, both of which are on the bookshelf behind me. And so oh, yeah. I'm glad we have <laughs> awesome. similar similar book taste, but good good stuff for uh, nonprofit leaders, entrepreneurs, consultants, and others to take advantage of. Um, Chris, again, I thank you. Uh, where can people go? Uh, obviously, the article will lift up, the book will lift up, but anything else that people want to learn more about you and the good work you're doing? Oh, sure. Yeah, my website is Putnam dash consulting.com. So from there, you can find out more about the advising and coaching and strategy uh, development and strategy implementation work that I do. And of course, eightthings.org to download that uh, free guide. And uh, I'm happy to, you know, if any of your listeners want to talk, I'm, I'm always happy to do that. Chris, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I really appreciate you joining me on the path. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can help you get out of your own way and focus on the things you need to do to be a successful nonprofit leader. Don't forget the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Chris and getting your hands on a copy of her book, delusional altruism. Once again, think about somebody else who's on the path that you might forward this episode to so they can listen and learn more. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Just go to the podcast page again at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. And if you like this episode, you might also enjoy number 62. Melissa Brown gave some great instruction on what we should learn about the donor mindset as well as the Giving USA report. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.